This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. Well, good morning. My name is Ryan Paulson. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, Many of you have been following uh, through our church uh, prayer chain. Uh, that Pastor Dan is sick. He's in the hospital. Uh, he, the, the latest word that I received is that he's doing well. Um, he's moving on to liquids today and hopes to be eating steak tomorrow to the glory of God. Well, maybe not steak, but something solid tomorrow. Continue to pray for him. Uh, we don't know exactly what this road of recovery looks like yet, but continue to hold him up in prayer and we will do our best to communicate with you uh, what's going on uh, with Dan. We're going to look today at what happens when a group of people come together uh, around the idea and that song that we just sang, saying that that Jesus is our center point, that that he's what we he's what we gather around, and and here's he's what we hold in common. And what we're going to see this morning is the byproduct of what happens when a group of people do that. Would you pray with me as we open up God's word together? King Jesus, we love you. We ask that you, Holy Spirit, that you would stir us, that you would move in us, that you would teach us, that you would mold us and make us more into your image, please. It's in your name that we pray, amen. When I was 12 years old, I got invited over to a friend's house with my brother. My brother and I went there and uh, we watched a movie We watched a movie called Fire in the Sky, and as a 12-year-old movie, this was a terrifying film. It was about alien abduction, and so as a 12-year-old, I'm watching this, I'm processing this in my uh, little mind, and my thought, takeaway from the movie is, oh, Lord, please don't let me get abducted by aliens, and so my brother and I, we came home that evening, and we turned on the light in his room, and we cowered in the corner the entire night. Our mom brought us things throughout the night, but neither of us slept a wink. We were haunted by the images in this film. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that where you saw a movie that just sort of stuck with you. As adults, we don't like to admit it as much, but it still happens sometimes, doesn't it? Where the images just stick with you. Can I, can I be honest with you for a moment? The images from this passage haunt me. The images from the passage that we're going to look at today, they haunt me. They haunt me with, with two things. One, the beauty of the picture that's painted. And two, the distance that I feel internally I at least need to go in order to become a part of that picture. And so often as I live this Christian life, this passage is one that just comes back to me. It's a passage that explores something that I long for, but as a leader in God's church, I feel the inability to create. It's a reality that I would love to say is a piece of what I experience on a daily basis, and yet Many times it seems like a distant fairy tale rather than a reality. It's one of the most taught passages in our New Testament. It is. This passage we're looking at today has been taught maybe more than any other passage, and yet I think it might be one of the least lived. 
And so we have this tension where we may have heard the words before, the words that are written in this passage of Scripture, and yet, and yet, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would make us a little bit uncomfortable this morning as we process what it looks like to live into the story of God. The, stories that he's, the story that he's telling throughout history and what he's doing in our world and in our midst. That, that question might haunt us. And here's sort of where we're going this morning. Here's the, the big idea. This doesn't work for me, you guys. In the back, will you click to the first slide, please? The big idea is simply this. It's that the invitation that God extends to us throughout this passage is to reorient our lives around the reality of the resurrection and the leading of the Spirit. See, here's what happens. As we sort of journey together through the book of Acts, what we've seen is that Jesus dies for the sin of humanity, that he's raised from the dead, he walks out of the tomb, his spirit descends on his people, and it changes them. I mean, imagine that. It really radically changed the way that they lived and the impact that they made. Now, now here's part of why this haunts me. No nice warm building or cool building, depending on what time of year it is. And with Denver, depending on what time of day it is. Um, no, no, no building to meet in. No nice PowerPoints to throw up on a screen in back of us. No New Testament. No phones to call people in the fellowship with. No cars to drive to church in. No Twitter to tweet out important sayings, no internet to display what time church meets. I'm haunted by this. This reality that the early church had so little and did so much. I'm convicted by the reality that we have so much and arguably could say we do so little, at least in comparison. So what, what caused it? If it, if it wasn't Facebook pages and Twitter and lights and sound. And if, if that wasn't it, what, what caused it? Because what happened in the early church is influencing what we do today. The ripple effects influence our entire world, our society, the places that we live, the things that we do, the reality that we hold. What did they do that shaped and formed their world and also ours? Well, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it because the passage that we're going to look at today in some ways answers this question. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? We don't do this every week, but it feels fitting. And I'd like for you to join me in reading this passage. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, 
They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Four things that I'd like to point out as we journey through this passage together this morning. Four things that uh, I think are going to press on us, let me say it personally, that have pressed on me as I've studied this passage throughout the week. Four things that in some ways may be a reality for us, but in other ways may press on us to say, are there things about life and the way that we do life that maybe in light of the call of God need to change a little bit? Can I be honest with you? I have better questions about this passage than I do answers. I have better questions than I do answers. And so my expectation is to throw out to you what I see and to spend the next years together unpacking how we actually do this. Here's what I see first off. They were devoted. They devoted themselves So here's what the early followers of Jesus understood. They understood that if what they claimed to have seen and what they knew to be true, if in fact it had happened, that it changed everything. Cultural Christianity was not on the radar screen of the early church. Um, Primarily because they were eventually going to be killed for what they believed. But that's a side note, neither here nor there for now. The early church was built on this word devotion. And so so Christianity, being a follower of Jesus, was not something that they added to an already existing set of values and life as they knew it. It was something that caused them to reevaluate everything they held to be true. This word devoted, I love this word. In the Greek, it means to stick with or to persist at. You know why I love that? I love that because within this word, it applies, it's not going to be easy. It implies there's going to be some seasons of life that are a little bit sticky and a little bit difficult, and there's going to be some times where it would be a lot easier to just tap out than it would be to continue to forge ahead. My uh, five-year-old son was learning yesterday how to ride a bicycle without training wheels, we were uh, in the, uh, on the sidewalk of our house, and we were, I was holding his little seat, and we were running down the sidewalk. Well, I was running, he was riding. Um, arguably, he was being pushed by me as we, I was running, but that's debatable. And so, um, you know, he falls a few times like a good dad. I, I let him fall a few times uh, where it was safe for him to fall. Those of you that look at me like I'm crazy, I don't want my kid to grow up as part of the trophy generation where he gets a trophy for showing up, Okay. I want him to actually know what it's like to work for something and, and maybe, even, maybe even fail a few times. And so he did that. And he threw his bike down on the driveway and said, I'm done. I'm going inside. <laughs> so we had a little conversation. Hey, Ethan, I know it's hard. And I know you don't get it now. But do you really want to quit? Do you really want to give up? And he says, yes. <laughs> 
I want to go inside and watch the iPad. That's what I want to do. Why are we having this discussion? And I said, Ethan, you're going to have, and so he can't understand all this now. I get that, but it doesn't mean I don't get to say it. Ethan, you're going to have choices in your life where it's going to be easier to tap out and give up than it will be to move forward. And I hope you're the type of person, eventually the type of man that continues to forge ahead even when it's hard. And through some coercing, he got back on the bike and yesterday learned how to ride a bike without training wheels. But that doesn't just apply for riding bikes, does it? You know what's interesting is that it actually applies for, according to this passage, our relationship with the Lord and with each other as well, that there will be seasons, I promise you, they need to be devoted because there were days and times when it was easier to tap out than it was to continue on. And there will be for you too, and part of the DNA and the ethos of this early church is they're devoted. Listen to what they're devoted to. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching. So not just going to hear the teaching, but the implication of the scriptures through Dr. Luke is that they're devoted to learning They're devoted to learning. They're devoted to asking God this difficult, simple question in light of your word and your reality, what in my life needs to change? And they're devoted to it, meaning they stick with it, meaning they persist at it, even when it's easier to go, now I'm done, I'm done. That's too too different than the way I envisioned a life going. They devoted themselves to understanding the way of Jesus, the grace and mercy that flowed to them from the cross. They devoted themselves to sitting under God's word through the apostles. And so we don't have the the word, we don't have the apostles teaching now. We have the writings of the apostles and the teachings of the apostles and we sit under that and we ask the same question, God, in light of what you've done and who you are, what in my life may need to change? What do I believe that's a lie? And at the base core level of what they're asking is this question, how do we collectively become the people of God? I was struck this week by very rarely do you read or hear about the person of God. You read about the people of God. So they're devoted to asking the question, how does grace change everything? We're not just coming to the scriptures for entertainment, but for transformation. They're devoted to fellowship. It means sharing things in common. They're devoted to, quote, breaking of bread. (laughs) Now, We love to go ultra-spiritual on this and say that every time they got together, they took communion. Maybe, but that's not what it says. What it says is they broke bread. (laughs) They ate together, which can be a very spiritual experience. If you've ever broken bread with people that you care about and had rich conversation around good food, you know that to be true. But this is the picture of the early church. They're together. They're sharing meals. They're in each other's homes. This is a charted course because of the resurrection and the reality of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Things changed. They're devoted to teaching, to fellowship, to prayer, to breaking of bread. What things are we devoted to? 
I think this passage begs us to ask the question, are our priorities in line with the resurrection and the indwelling and leading of the Holy Spirit in such a way that it changes us? It begs us to ask that question. Well, the passage continues. It says this in verse 44, and all who believed were together All who believed were together and they had all things in common. You see, the early followers of Jesus, they understood that the gospel did not just call them to Jesus. It did that, but not that alone. It also called them to one another. This word fellowship, I just shared with you, it means to hold things in common. And I don't know that fellowship is necessarily the best translation of the word. Because fellowship is a result of what happens when we hold things in common. See, they did not have fellowship on the proverbial bullseye. They weren't saying, let's get together and let's have fellowship. Fellowship is what broke out as they said, we're sharing life together. What's mine is yours, and hey, what's yours is mine. It's a byproduct, not a focal point, but the ethos, the the DNA of this early church is that they were communal rather than individual. They were communal rather than individual, and if we're honest, doesn't this point alone press against everything we hold dear in many ways? Here's, Here's the idea, at least it resonates in my soul is I love this as theory, and when it comes to practicing it, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I want to go there. I'm not sure I want to hold things in common. We live in a highly individualistic society. That can be reflected in many of the questions we even ask about God and relationship with God. Here's what I mean by that. Have you noticed that many of the questions we ask aren't answered by the scriptures? That should trouble us. Our questions are so much about me and how do I do this and how do I enter into spiritual formation and how do I find the right person to marry and how do I find the right job to take and me, 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 I, I, I. And it seems as though scripture points us to we, 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 us, us, us. A whole lot more. And it points us to me. See, anytime Christianity becomes an individualistic endeavor, it ceases to be biblical Christianity. Anytime Christianity becomes an individualistic endeavor, it ceases to be biblical Christianity. And anytime, here's the thing, anytime people share mission in common, share vision in common, share this conviction about the resurrection and the leading of the Holy Spirit in common. Anytime we do that, we form community. But you know what? If we just try to form community, we may fail at it horribly. Because like fellowship, community is a byproduct of centering our lives around this shared mission and this shared vision. They had this dream, the early church. Listen to it. Listen to it. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
So, so here's the dream of the early church. What if we created a place? What if we created a group where no one had any need? What would happen? What would happen if we started to believe that within the body that God calls together, there was enough resources, not individually, but collectively, to go around? What type of people might this form? What type of group might this create? They had this dream. What if that were to happen? No needy people. Wow. You see why I propose to you that I have more questions than I have answers? That I'm haunted by this passage because I deeply love and am drawn to that idea, but I don't know the systems of how to make that happen, partially because it's not a system, it's a heart. It's a heart collectively together where we say, I have more than I need, maybe I'll share it with somebody that doesn't quite have enough. I love the way that the early church was known. Listen to this. Uh, Rodney Stark in his great book, The Rise of Christianity, as a sociologist, he wrestles with the question, how did the church survive? It doesn't make any sense. It's a mystery. And yet, it's a reality. And part of the conclusion he comes to is they survived and even thrived because of the way that they lived. He writes this. Christianity revitalized life in the Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms, new kinds of social relationships, able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with homelessness and and, and the impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent and ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. At its core, we see this very practical movement of the people of God, where their, their homes were open, their hearts were open. I mean, you get that the people described in this passage aren't all nice, clean-cut people, right? I mean, they're people who come to know the Lord out of shady backgrounds and are maybe the next day invited to meals with followers of Jesus who declare, my home's open. This is gospel space. That God's given me. What do you want to do in it, Lord? Open hearts, open homes, open pockets, saying, God, resources that you've given me. My goal is that there's no needy person. They're sacrificial, they're generous, they sell property that's been in their family, maybe for generations, for the glory and name of Jesus. Many of you do this very, very well. I know I have a ways to go. 
And if you step back, if you step back from what happened in this passage and, and sort of understand the context, let me, let me invite you in a little bit because it's important. The context is these early followers of Jesus. This scene is taking place in the Roman Empire where Caesar and his men would come through towns that these people knew well, maybe even their own hometowns, and would absolutely level it, would burn it down, would crucify many of the men in the village. Here's what Rome wanted you to know. If you need anything, come to Rome. If you need anything, ask us, and we're going to strip away every resource you have in order to put you in a position of need. And here's what the early followers of Jesus did. They pushed back against that, and they created this group. They created this space where they said, we may not have enough as individuals, but together we have more than enough. And so Rome had this saying. Every time they went into a city, Caesar is Lord. Sometimes they even added, Caesar is Lord and God. And so make no mistake about it, when the writers of the New Testament start to propose Jesus is Lord, they are starting a revolution, and the revolution is based around this reality. If we have each other, Caesar, we don't need you. And it transformed the world. Can I point out something that's ironic? I don't ever read in the New Testament about the church asking how they influence culture. But they did. But they did. I mean, if you could throw out to an early follower of Jesus, hey, in a few hundred years, there's going to be a cross hanging in the Roman Colosseum, they would have gone, come on, come on, stop it, get out of here. It wasn't on their radar screen. It wasn't their goal, and yet they accomplished it. Isn't it ironic that it seems to be, at least in current modern North American evangelicalism, the goal to transform culture? And I don't see us being all that effective. Just an observation. An observation that somebody walked out after I made last service, so if you want to exit now, you can. Um, And I'm not saying we shouldn't impact culture. I just want to tell you how to do it. I want to tell you how to do it. Because we are called to impact and influence culture, but here's how you impact and influence culture. You create a better one. You create a better one. And so in this Roman Empire that had this culture of violence and had this culture of death and had this culture of superiority, they started to say, no, we're on equal footing, we're brothers, we love each other, we'll sacrifice for each other. And it created a culture whose ripple effects not only changed the entire Roman Empire, but the world. So you change culture. Do I want us to change culture? Yes and amen. But here's what the world intrinsically knows. There's no value in our speech if it's not backed up by something better. By something better. Do I long for it? Yes. Do I want to work for it? Yes. But unless we have something here that's worth reproducing, I think we're probably just a clanging gong or a sounding symbol.
well, all throughout this passage, you may have noticed there's a lot of verbs. Devoted, teaching, learning, praying. A lot of those are participles, but we won't need to go there. Um, There's a lot of verbs. There's a lot of action packed into this picture that's painted that in light of the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection, and the leading of the Spirit, this is what the community starts to look at. And what we see is this church body, this group of people is a at their core, in their, in their DNA, their ethos is we are a practicing community rather than a theorizing one. And upon encountering the power of Pentecost and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the early church channels this quote-unquote experience into sustainable, transferable, transformative practices. They don't say, hey, let's rewind and let's do Pentecost again. That's not the question they ask. The question they ask is in light of the reality of the resurrection, the power of the Holy Spirit, the leading of the Holy Spirit, how does that demand that we live? And it was very real and it was very practical, which is why you read so many verbs about the early church. They were part of a practicing community. They took the glory that was poured out at Pentecost and they began to weave it into the community and ethos that they lived together. They didn't just point back, we want more of that. But that informed the way that they did everything. I love the way that Leslie Newbegin, the great scholar, puts it when he says this, we must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. They weren't just talking about it, friends. They were doing it. They were living it. I went to a conference a little while back, and I heard a man by the name of Charles Lee speak, and his specialty is ideation implementation. I know that sounds exciting to you. Here's what he does. He helps people take ideas. He helps people take dreams and hopes for a new reality and actually make them happen. He gave this piece of advice that really stood out to me. He said this, whenever you have an idea, write it down. I know that's groundbreaking. (laughs) But he said, but don't talk about it. Whenever you have an idea, he said, write it down, but don't talk about it. He says, here's what happens in our brain. As we talk about the ideas that we have, the hopes and dreams that we have, our brain does something where we actually start to think that talking about them actually is synonymous with doing them. It's not. (laughs) Which, you know, partially talking for a living, that's convicting, (laughs) But I started to wonder, Lord, have, do we talk about this stuff more than we do it? And if so, how might we start to more and more become a practicing church, not a theorizing church, not a talking church, but a church that actually does the type of things that are indicative of the reality that Jesus walked out of the grave and the Spirit lives in us and leads us. Let me give you one word that I feel like 
is a synopsis of what they did. They loved. They loved. They loved, first and foremost, the people that were in their circle. They sold things. They gave things. They sacrificed. They opened their homes. They did that first and foremost for the people in their circle. And then they started to do it in wider and wider circles as they were able. But that's what they did. They loved. That was the DNA of this church. They actually practiced it. They saw this is a verb. It's a new command, not just a theory. Do it. Love. So one of the early church fathers, um, Tertullian, he writes this. It is our care of the helpless and our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Time out. Wouldn't you love the opponents of Christianity to say this about us? It is our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Only look, they say, at how they love one another. And so throughout history, um, even in modern day, what you see is communities of people gathering around a, a set of practices. There's been a few that I've read over the last week as I've studied that have really stood out to me. I'm going to post those on our website through blogs this week. I'd invite you to ask the simple question in your life group, God, what rites, what, what, what rituals, what type of practices as a community are you inviting us to embrace that we might really live out the way of Jesus and not just talk about it? One example is of a community who uses this acronym BELLS, as in ding, ding. And there, it's an acronym, and so they have five things that they long to practice. One, they want to be a blessing. Two, they want to eat together and invite people who aren't yet followers of Jesus to eat with them at least once a week. Three, they want to listen. That's sort of their word for prayer. How do we listen to and engage with this God who's speaking to us. Four, we want to learn. We want to sit under the word of God in a way that shapes and forms and transforms our life. And finally, S, we want to live as sent people in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and in our families. And so together, they ask these questions. How do we become the people of God and live in the way of Jesus, not just theorize, about the words that he's said. Well, finally, this passage concludes with this, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Just a quick time out. Is that awesome? I mean, that's, what, a, what a picture. What a picture. Praising God and having favor with all the people. Here's what we see. Here's what we see. Is it this community of people where in light of the resurrection and the leading of the Holy Spirit, they embraced these practices. They devoted themselves. They lived communally. And it wasn't like, oh, we've got to do this. If only Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. And if only the Spirit wasn't prompting us to embrace this new but equally damaging yoke. Well, guess we gotta fight. No, no, glad 
generous, sincere, alive, abundant hearts as they live in the way of the risen Savior. You see, I think it's one of those things where if we stand at the glass and we look in, like through this passage, and we just look in, we start to wonder, how does that lead to generous, glad, joyful hearts? And if we step in and live it, may I propose to you, we never ask that question. We just know it's true. That it does. That it does. The picture of the early church is one of jubilant parties and passionate prayer services, not begrudging submission to a new yet equally heavy set of rules. Is this a picture you have of what it looks like to follow Jesus? Is this the picture you have of what it looks like to live as the people of God? Part of the reason I'm convicted is because I think if we want different things out of life, like the early church had and the life that they live, if we want different things out of life, then we need to ask different questions and we need to do things differently in life. I'm, I'm surrounded by friends who constantly press me to ask hard questions. Not, with, not just with the words that they say, but with the lives that they live. Um, two of my friends, Rob and Christine Caldwell, um, they're asking these difficult questions. What does it look like to live as the people of God? And God's taking them on this journey, leading them down this road that I, I want you to hear about. Not so that you ask the same questions as them, but simply so that you ask questions. My name's Rob Caldwell. Uh... I am the owner of Coldwater Software. I founded it with two other friends, good friends of mine. And my name is Christine Caldwell, and um, and I am just transitioning out of doing social media marketing um, consulting, and I'm trying to launch a food product line this summer at farmers markets in the Denver area. So together, we have three children who have yes. probably run past and into most people in the church at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, Elijah's our oldest, he's 12, and Isaac's our middle child, he's 10, and Annalise is 8. Nice. Um, we have our home in Highlands Ranch, and it's it's a, a large family home, and it's just, it's more than we need, frankly, and we've, we have felt great about having the house, it's really been put to good use, we've had a lot of people live with us and stay with us, and we've been able to host life groups, but even then, we just had a sense of, um, this is more than we need, and so... The first step in this journey was to put the house up for sale, and we don't know where that'll go yet. Well, we had a little meeting with our kids to talk about like what things are important to our family. I don't remember what prompted that, but we made a list of like what things are important to us, and are we living a life reflecting that? And you know, we made this long list of you know traveling and being generous to others and all this stuff. And we pointed out that having a large house was nowhere on that list. And so we kind of had this talk about like how to live our life to more reflect that list. Um, Our house is a great place Mm -hmm. with only fond memories. Mm -hmm. Um, And our family has loved being there. It wasn't an easy thing to come to. Uh, And I think when we really decided to do it, there was for me both uh, excitement and sadness at the same time. 
it's hard. It's a hard thing to feel these things and feel convicted about them in their heart, but everyone next door to you and all around you is is on a different path. Yeah, yeah I mean, your possessions aren't something you just pay for one time. They're something that you continue to invest in in one way or another, and so I just feel like the mix of what we were investing in in life was, was off. When I was working for Newmont Mining, we actually traveled to Australia, um, to Perth, and for work, but the family came with me and we were there for a month, and we were in a tiny condo while we were there, and our kids loved every second of that. And they loved it because they could walk from the condo. They loved it because they saw me more often. Um, they loved it because our weekends were spent um, talking and laughing and playing together as a family. And um, I would actually point back to that and say that was one of the things that helped me understand how very flexible kids are and how much more they value the time with you than they do value um, having a bigger house. They, they literally don't care. They don't know. And since that trip, they've asked us if we can move in a condo like that one. They're yeah. like, I loved my room there. I just loved that place. Yeah. And we're like, really? <laughs> bare white walls and, yeah. and nothing but a bed inside of they it. They each know? had a little box full of stuff that they brought in their suitcase. You know, they yeah. hardly had anything. And they were like, that was my favorite place we ever lived. <laughs> you can be confident of the journey and and still really struggle mm -hmm. to walk it. Mm -hmm. And, and that is, that's us many days. And it's... Some days frustrating and I want to tear my hair out. Some days we doubt it, you know. I just, I feel like we can trust God with it, you know. We can, we can trust Him with this process and with our lives. And um, that's, I think, what helps us walk through it with confidence. Because even if we don't know how it's going to end, that we trust Him with it. So. I don't invite you into Rob and Christine's story in order to suggest to you that you should sell your house. It's maybe a question you should ask, but I think it's more about responding to the living Jesus inside of you and where he's inviting you to go on this journey. I will repeat, if we want different things out of life, we need to do life differently. Thank you for sharing your story. It challenges me. It points me back to the scripture in Acts, and it makes me, forces me, invites me to ask hard questions about life and living things in order and valuing the things I really value. What I love about this church, I mentioned before, it changed the world. It, it did. If you go back to verse 41 that's up on the screen, it says those who received his word were baptized and there were added to the, added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people who become followers of Jesus in one day. Hey, newsflash, that's a mega church in a day. <laughs> That's not a clean thing that happens. My guess is the apostles are both celebrating that yes and amen, and they go home and cry into their pillow at night, okay? Because that's, that's messy, it's chaos, it's organic, it's life, it's life. Verse 47, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's be clear, the early church was not focused on growing. The early church was focused on Jesus, and Jesus is awesome. And when we're focused on Jesus and walking with him, the byproduct of walking with Jesus is life. 
in you and in the people around you. Living things grow. That's not a bad thing. That's something to be expected. In fact, the result of this new community, will you go to that next slide, Chris? The result of this new community is constant expansion and explosive power. Constant expansion, explosive power. Because Jesus was at the center and they were asking ridiculously hard questions making sacrifices that they didn't exactly know where that road was going, but they were obedient to the Spirit. And what God did in their midst shaped and formed their world and ours, and ours. Friends, may we ask the same difficult questions. May we be a church that's devoted to Jesus and to one another. May we be a church that lives life together. If you're not in a life group, you should be. That lives life together. Because that doesn't happen just on a Sunday morning. It happens throughout the week. That practices, not just theorizes. And that lives in the abundant joy that is following after King Jesus. Friends, I pray that we really truly would become and be the people of God together. We're going to end our service by celebrating baptisms, new life that's in Jesus. So during this next, this last song, as our band comes back up, they're going to lead us in a one last song together. If you're um, on the docket to be baptized today, then we'd invite you to sneak out those doors. Eva will be right next to them and she'll um, help escort you out. If you are not on the quote-unquote docket today, um, here's the deal. God's docket is way more important than ours. Um, and so if you're a follower of Jesus and you, not, and you have not yet been baptized, may I propose to you that there's no better day than today. The Bible would say if, the, if you put your faith in Jesus and you are following after him, then one of those steps of obedience is to be baptized. We've done our best to try to take every single roadblock you can come up with in your mind out of the way. We have robes that you can wear, clothes that you can change into, towels that you can use, hair dryers that are at your disposal, makeup that you can use. Ladies, makeup that you can use. So um, if you'd like to make that step of obedience today to follow Jesus during this last song, we'd invite you to just sneak out those doors and Eva will help you get ready. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to continue to wrestle with what it looks like to follow you. What it looks like to be and to become the people of God. Father, our prayer would be that you would shape us, that you'd form us, that you'd mold us, that you'd make us more into the image of your son. God, that as you create a life-giving community within this church, within these walls, within the groups that meet all throughout the neighborhoods around Littleton and Denver. God, that that culture that's created would be simply a center point and a starting point for a ripple effect that would radically, absolutely change our world. So Jesus, thank you for being a God we're following.
worth giving everything to. We're excited now to celebrate baptism, this declaration that we've decided to follow after you, Jesus. Spirit, I pray that if there's anybody else in this room that you're prompting, would you make that clear to them uh, to be baptized this morning, to make that step of obedience, take that step of faith to follow after you with your people. It's in your name that we pray. This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.